Hello, I'm Philip Morris and I'm joined tonight by David Havs Havard. Good evening. To discuss the latest in science news and scepticism. These conversations used to happen over a drink in our local pub, but the idea came about to bring these musings to the world of the Tinterweb in the form of a podcast. And of course, we're still accompanied by a drink or two. Welcome to a Skeptic's Night In. How are you, Havs? Yeah, good mate. Just been working like a dog recently. Hence why we've been a bit late with the uh, release of this podcast. Yeah, I'm also moving I'm moving to Swansea, like I mentioned a couple of weeks ago. So I've been moving house, so we've been pretty swamped. Uh, so what we're going to be doing today is we're going to be using some content from our old recordings. Our recording with Harry, some from our recording with Geth, and some from our recording with Dean. Just extra bits of content that we'd just like to share with you because they were interesting conversations, but we didn't manage to fit them into the podcast. So it's going to be an interesting episode. It's not going to be like the others. It'll be quite fun, and I hope you all enjoy listening to our extra content. We've still got some formalities to get through, so Havs, what are you drinking? Tonight, mate, I'm drinking Red Stripe. Yeah, Jamaican Re- Recycling rather. drinks recently. Yeah, well, mate, it's just like, on my way home from work, I like to get a can for the bus, and <laughs> and Red Stripe <laughs> seems to be the drink of choice. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I feel like on Friday and Saturday, I need to get the bus home, because I've missed the last two. Yeah, it's about like a half an hour bus ride, so I just have a nice can of Red Stripe. I'm guessing this is really late at night as well. Yeah, it's about three in the morning. Yeah, it's not like five in the afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, I should probably <laughs> specify where in a pub and I yeah. finish very late. <laughs> I'm not just finishing at four o'clock and having some shots on the bus on the way home. What are you drinking tonight, Phil? I am drinking San Miguel Cerveza. Um, oh, I like San Miguel. Yeah, Spanish beer based in Barcelona. Um, it's quite refreshing. Barcelona. I've got one of the big bottles of that. Quite nice. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this bonus reel, Phil. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting one, yeah. We end up having really long conversations when we record our podcast. And I always feel, when I listen back over to the edit, I'm like, oh no, we missed out that bit. Oh no, we missed out that bit. So it's quite nice that we can kind of stitch these bits in that didn't quite fit into the original podcast. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we, we always have some really interesting conversations whilst we're recording, but obviously we try and make it as specific as we can so that we're not rambling off too much off topic. But occasionally that happens. This is an opportunity to share that those uh, interesting conversations with our listeners. So, yeah. Okay, so first up, we've got a little snippet of a conversation we had from our recording with Dean George. So just to lend a little bit of context to this, we were discussing neutrinos with Dean. Towards the end, he mentioned a quote from a media outlet. Um, We launched into a tangential conversation about how science is presented to the media and the sceptical movement in general and just having discussions with people who don't like to listen to the scientific view. So we'll just have a quick listen to that now. We can reconstruct the muon tract to better than half a degree, Professor Halizen said. This is totally going to change the astronomy we can do, which sounds like quite a grand statement. It just leaves it there. <laughs> How? Just a grandiose <laughs> statement, and then like, Professor yeah, Halsen see you later. Walked off. He just went this way. Yeah, he's got ADHD. He just he dropped his mic. He was just like, <laughs> <laughs> it's going to change the astronomy world. I'm out. Boof. <laughs> I do find science articles, you know, I think I think there is a duty on scientists sometimes to um, to explain to journalists what's going on a bit better. Sometimes I think it's lacking context. Yeah, there's sometimes there's that problem, but then a lot of the time it's science journalists just going off and not reading stuff properly, not really yeah. 
taking, you know, all the information, getting the proper sources. I, yeah, and I also just interpreting there, things to make it sound more dramatic than it really is, or more interesting well, than the it big, really is. The big problem with that is it's the press release. So, like, the institutes or the universities who house these researchers, they will release a press release, and they will, like, actually jazz it up to get press, yes. to get investment. And this is where miscommunications can happen, and this is where elaborations... There isn't, that one, there isn't that one person, so they have to try and simplify it and, and take the meat and bones out of it, and, and, you know, and so that a journalist can then turn it around and make sense of it for, you know, but that, but that's, a person to read it. That's what, a, that's what a science journalist is supposed to do, and they just yeah, they do it. Don't. They just take the press release for... You know, it's the same gospel. For, it's the same for political journalists, sports journalists. There, well, it's the true. Any, any industry like that, the way it works is, you don't get experts becoming journalists. You know, the experts are doing the work. You know, hmm. yeah, that's a good point. That's why we're here. Yeah. So yeah, but I think I think there is some kind of responsibility on science. I mean, there is examples of good science where they are scientists making an effort then to explain these things properly. And that, I think that's what the sceptical movement oh, is all lost. about. Because it's, it's the exactly, sceptical yeah. movement is a bunch of lay people, essentially, who are trying to communicate science in, in an effective way to the public rather than people just yeah. relying on science, you know, science journalism because they, they're never going to get the information they need. But we have this, we're, we're able to read something, figure out when it's bullshit, and mm. give the, the correct information that people, that people want and people require. So they can come up with reasoned arguments and reasoned um, responses to science. I th I think there is a fair onus on there's an onus on the scientists to explain, but there's also an onus on the public to, to um, question what they read and and to be a little bit more skeptical in, in general. You know, yeah, and that's yeah. just not and that doesn't happen. A bit in an um, ideal world, you know, that's yeah. almost the secondary purpose to skepticism. Well, that is kind of one of the main purposes of skepticism. It's not only just to inform, but to actually say, look question things you know because otherwise you're never going to get the truth you've got Absolutely. to ask yourself i think uh, critical thinking needs to be taught in schools from an earlier age really oh, than, than because skeptical thinking is only a skill i was really came to contact with when i got to university i mean yeah. it, it was it was it was touched on you know the scientific method was touched on in in school but we, i didn't really have an understanding of how science works and what the scientific process really is until i got to university and did it as a degree um, I felt I felt it when because uh, the scientific method to me was like the, the, one of the most fascinating things I ever learned about. But I didn't really understand it in school. To me, it just kind of felt laborious. Exactly. Um, yeah. Like why why do we need proof for everything? It's annoying. You know, I wanted to. Be, I was kind of an Aristotle kind of person where I was just like, ah, I'll just assume it's true. You know. <laughs> <laughs> um, which is literally like how how a child thinks, I suppose. Um, mm. But then, like scientific method, is almost like it's enlightenment view of like you know we've got to be better than our nature sort of thing. Absolutely, um, we have to keep questioning. But, but I think at the same time, I didn't really, I didn't really get into grips with that until about sixth form age, like you say, when I was, I, I suddenly when I got into sort of learning about quantum, the quantum universe and stuff, and I realised that even the scientific method is under question. <laughs> like you know, it's, yeah, it's, when you start questions, the questioning, it's amazing. But I think maybe in the schools we shouldn't. Well, we should teach the scientific method, obviously, but do it in a different way. So instead of just doing it directly, like droning on, like, you know, you observe, you experiment, then you have results and whatever, because it's, it's laborious. It's like, I don't know, children just get bored of that. They just don't want to be told these yeah. stupid facts. But you should teach them how to basically analyze the situation and go, what does the evidence say here? So, like, mm. teach them how to look out for, like, red herrings and maybe even just, like, give them a piece of research, simplified, 
and go, what do you think of it? And then teach them kind of how to look at news stories and pieces of research and go, wait a minute, that yeah. doesn't look right to me. Because when I was a kid, if, if a researcher said it, I was like, oh, it's true. I didn't even think to question uh, their methods. I was just like, oh, scientists have said this. That's interesting. Yeah. And I would have believed anything you'd have told me. And you get so many times in uh, science media where uh, it says, oh, this drug yeah, cures exactly, cancer yeah. in, cures cancer when the, the actual study was done in like rats or something. But and what they believe is the last thing the same thing. Or like um, such but, and such a, th- a food is toxic, you know, or can give you cancer when the study again yeah. has only been done in mice or rats, you know. So it does; it's not transferable. It's not translatable to to humans. You know what is frustrating though is when when people turn the burden of proof onto you to to disprove the the, the lie. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. They're, they're using your logic against you essentially. So if you go, well, mate, like. Sorry, but there's not much proof in the Bible of that. And they go, well, can you disprove it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's not falsifiable, it's true. Yeah. You just made this outlandish statement in a, in a room, and, and now you're asking people to disprove you, um, which is exactly what you'd accuse me of if I came in here with some, uh, you know, the universe is expanding or whatever, you know. <laughs> it's, 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 it's mad, you know, that they, they've, got the, they've got the tools. It's almost like you're just, you know, mis- using the tools for the completely wrong thing <laughs> yeah. to prove a lie, you know. Mm. And and sometimes they just lie. I got into a disagreement with some creationists, and I, I was really nice. I wasn't too forceful because that's not the best way to try and convince someone otherwise. But they were just saying things that just simply weren't true. And I was like, oh, that's not true because of this. And they were like, no, it is true. I was like, <laughs> what? Based I've on what? you evidence and you're just like, no, no, it is true. And I was like, my oh, favorite, my God. My favorite, is, my favorite is says who. And, and if you quote, you know, or if you quote a book or a or, or person, <laughs> then they go, well, who's that? And they go, well, I haven't heard of them. Or they'll go, well, you, trust, you trust all scientists, do you? And it's like, uh, uh, <laughs> uh, no, I trust the scientific community, Brilliant. you know, because you like, who told you that? Yeah. And they're like, my, my mum told me. It's like, well, I don't trust her. <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, you can do that back to them. Yeah, yeah. But it's, it's like, why do you believe in what you believe? Oh, because the Bible said it. I'm like, how can you trust the Bible? Because it's written by God. How can you trust that it's written by God? Because it's in the Bible and it's this repetitive. Cyclical, yeah. Cyclical, yeah. You can't, yeah. You literally cannot win this. But that's where, like, you know, critical thinking has to be. It actually is a, a, an art to it. It's not just um, questioning everything blindly and going, like, uh, or just believing the last thing you heard. You know, it's like there's actually a, a discipline to it. Well, I bloody enjoyed that snippet, Phil. Yeah, it was interesting, wasn't it? I have to say. Yeah, um, I like that, yeah. Yeah, I think there were some really interesting points uh, brought up there, Phil. Because science media is, is so important for getting the truth out there. But as we were talking about so frequently, science journalists aren't always trained scientifically. You may have a journalist writing science articles who comes from an arts background or a history background and has very little training in the scientific method and how to... Critically evaluate. Yeah, how to critically evaluate science and come to the correct conclusions. But what you frequently get with science communication is 
clickbait essentially and it's even like, sometimes uh, the, the actual articles you, you see these these wild headlines and you click on these dramatic headlines and the content of the article if you actually read it doesn't even tell you that that's the truth that's what's going on so yeah exactly uh, yeah it's like saying the headline saying does chocolate give you cancer and then in the first line it'll say no and then talk <laughs> about something else and it's like come on <laughs> there's a great book by a uh, Ben Goldick. Oh, well, Ben, uh, ben Goldick yes. has written a couple of great books. I think Bad I know which science, one you mean. Bad Science. And then also, book, yeah. you'll find, I think it's called, you'll find it's a little bit more complicated than that. And I love that quote because uh, yeah. everyone always says, oh, yeah, apparently this new drug or th- this new thing has been found. And it's very black and white. And in reality, it's a lot more complicated than that because, you know, we're talking about biology, we're talking about science. It's a very complicated, intertwined system biology science everything the environment is very very complicated and it's never black and white or very rarely black and white i would urge the listeners to go out find a kindle copy of ben goldacre's bad science or his other book i think you'll find it's a bit more complicated than that they're really good reads uh, it really gives you an understanding of how things are confusing in in medicine to uh, the public and how you can spot cranks, charlatans, and people who are purveyors of misinformation. So it's, yeah, it's a really good read. I recommend you watch it, and we'll put a, maybe put a link up to the book in the show notes afterwards. Okay, next up, this conversation was with Harry. If you recall, we were recording just as the probe New Horizons was flying past Pluto. Just as we were recording our section on Pluto in, in that podcast, we took a look at our, a Reddit feed that had breaking news coming in about Pluto and the surrounding moons. Specifically, this extract looks at some of the moons of Pluto. So, let's have a listen. The um, nitrogen atmosphere, it was detected five days away from its closest approach. So this was 1.6 million miles out of Pluto. They were getting these nitrogen readings emanating from the planet. Well, the dwarf planet. Slightly off topic, there is a darkish area near the north pole of uh, Charon, which is one of the moons of Pluto, and it is apparently being informally referred to as Mordor. Awesome. Cool. Oh, there's a joke there, isn't there, with the rings of Saturn? Yeah, I was just thinking of that, yeah. (laughs) And there's ice on Hydra. Hydra's surface is, according to Hal Weaver, Hydra's surface is probably primarily composed of water ice. Dot, 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 that's cool. (laughs) I love these moons, they've been named after things from Greek mythology, they're not. Well, the river Styx is um, the way to hell, is it? Yeah, so that's in there. Yes, Charon is the river man of the river Styx. Ah, okay. From one side to the other. Which is yes. kind of ominous, considering they've now named a part of it Mordor. <laughs> <laughs> the Dark Lord. One of the sweet things about this whole story is that uh, the remains of Clyde Tombow, Tombow, 1930. So he, he gets to visit Pluto, sort of. Who's Clyde Tombow? Tombow. He was the man who was given the job of basically inspecting a bunch of recordings made from various arrays and whatnot. And um, he was the person who actually discovered where Pluto was on the 18th of February 1930, it says here in front of me. Oh, Oh, amazing. I always thought that some of the planets, they only knew they were there from uh, analysing kind of like the maths of the orbits of the other planets. Was that maybe like Neptune or something? No, that, that was Pluto. Pluto was in that. In 1906, Percival Lowell, a wealthy Bostonian who had founded the Lowell Observatory, started an extensive project in search of a possible ninth planet. Which oh, awesome. Planet. 
but that you know nothing came of that for ages but the way they figured there would be a ninth planet or dwarf planet was from the um the effect it had on neptune and uranus's orbits news just in sharon is active uh, sharon is not lazy sharon is active <laughs> and looking for a job <laughs> yeah. uh, we've got a thing on our reddit feed uh, does the implication that Sharon is active have any implications on origin? So we're assuming um, that's volcanic activity. Well, uh, it has what sort of at the moment. I mean, how can something be volcanic that far out? The, the Earth keeps warm from the inside from radiation decay. I, I mean, I, I'm not, you know, I'm not an expert. This is just speculation. But could there not be like a moon or a planet with just a lot of? radioactive material in it that's keeping it warm i mean they have to be really oh. dense like the core would have to be super dense for that because these bodies are really small well, i suppose a from the new horizons team radioactive heat could be powering the geologic activity or a body may be able to store heat from its formation yeah, you might be right house <laughs> <laughs> you might be right on the money oh damn it feels good to be right oh, <laughs> well man, we don't know it... yet That'll be an interesting one to look into. Wow. I didn't think we'd get That's much insane. from the moons. I thought it'd all, you know, all of the big discoveries would be about Pluto. So, Phil, I think Pluto is now my favourite dwarf planet. I don't know about you. <laughs> well, we haven't really got to Cirrus yet, but yeah, um, yeah, I quite like Pluto. The interesting thing as well that I've discovered since we recorded that as well is that um, Pluto and its moon Sharon are actually a binary system rather than... Sharon being a moon of Pluto. So what that means is that they orbit around one another. So the difference between a binary system and a regular system has to do with the centre of gravity of each of the systems. If the centre of gravity passes through the middle of a planet in a system, then it can be said that you've got a planetary body with a moon orbiting it. If, however, the centre of gravity of the two orbiting bodies falls outside a body, then it can be said that the two orbiting bodies are orbiting around one another, because they're orbiting around a point in space that doesn't go through themselves. So so that's what's happening with Sharon and Pluto. So there's a centre of gravity floating in space, and Pluto and Sharon are orbiting around that central point of gravity. But obviously it's their gravity that is influencing their orbits, obviously. They're, they're orbiting one another, so the centre of gravity falls outside of the body of Pluto, essentially. So Pluto and Sharon, they're orbiting each other, and they're a binary system. Are they both dwarf planets that are orbiting each other? Because Sharon was always considered to be the largest moon of Pluto, it hasn't actually been changed yet, but some astronomers have proposed upgrading Sharon to the status of dwarf planet rather than a moon of Pluto. Because um, that makes sense. Because, because it does make sense, yeah. yeah. Not, it's not technically a moon, because it, well, it's about half the diameter of Pluto, but obviously because they're so big in relation to one, one another, it, it can be argued that Sharon is a dwarf planet in its own right. And so like the moons then that orbit this binary system essentially would orbit both Sharon and Pluto. I think there'll be talks between the astronomical societies of the world, and I'm sure that this reclassification will happen at some point. And it's not not too long ago we thought, oh, Pluto's a planet, then it Mm. got reclassified to dwarf planet, and now we may have to reclassify it again to binary binary dwarf planets, I suppose. I don't know what the word for it is. Binary dwarf system, I suppose. Binary dwarf system. That's awesome. In our Pluto, you're full of surprises. I know. And the thing is, this week we're going to start getting more images through because we've only had 5% of the 
data from the new Horizons uh, yeah. probe so far. That's right. And I think the 95% is going to start coming through this week, I think. And we'll see what that data gives us, and we may do a small snippet in the news section uh, of the next episode. So look out for that if you really like Pluto. So next we've got a little bit of a humorous item for you. This was recorded during the podcast with Gethy. During our main topic, when we went to talk on about SETI, I made an off-the-cuff remark about Will Smith, and that launched us into a ludicrous sub-conversation about Will Smith's son, Jaden, who fancies himself as a bit of an amateur philosopher, has reels off a bunch of his philosophical tweets, and we react to those. So this is quite a fun little, little item. I uh, hope you enjoy it. Maybe he'll get his kid on board, shamelessly throw his film into films. He'll have no place I think in. You should get them both in. Get Willow in. She'll whip her hair back and forth. <laughs> Confuse the aliens. It'll be fun. So a on nice the bit of philosophy from Jaden Smith as well. Oh, God's no. sake. <laughs> Trees know more than humans. Like what? What is like? What? What the hell's that? Trees know more than humans. Jaden Smith. Uh, Jaden Smith, he writes all these really weird philosophical things in inverted commas. Was that one of them as well? Jaden Smith. Like I'm, I'm actually going to look up Jaden Smith tweets because I just want you to know them. <laughs> <laughs> so we interrupt this broadcast <laughs> to give you Jaden Smith's insights. I'm the philosopher, Jaden Smith. <laughs> Carl Sagan, eat your heart out. Yeah, Carl Sagan's got nothing on Jaden Smith. <laughs> How can mirrors be real if our eyes aren't real? <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> okay, okay. Trees are never sad. Look at them every once in a while. That's actually okay. alright. Why, why are they never sad? Is because they're not sentient, that's why. <laughs> they have brains. There is no nutrients in our food anymore, or in our soil, or in our water. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Alright, mate. Like, some of them aren't actually that bad. Okay. Inside the vacuum, a motor turns a fan, which forces air forward, decreasing the air pressure behind the fan. That's deep. I quite like what? it, though. It's, a bit it's true. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> there is low pressure behind a fan, yes. I reckon he probably Googled that, didn't he? The more time you spend awake, the more time you spend asleep. What? Yeah, you get tired, brother. You need longer to recover. If everyone in the world dropped out of school, we'd have a much more intelligent society. <laughs> what? <laughs> okay. If a bookstore never runs oh, out of a certain geez. book, does that mean that nobody reads it or everybody reads it? Oh. Oh, he's deep, <laughs> isn't he? He's deep. Oh, hang on. Oh, this one's good. You can discover everything you need to know about everything by looking at your hands. <laughs> the meaning of life. Um, oh, there it is. Does God? Oh my God! I hope this one's not true. AIDS and HIV are fake diseases created by the condom industry to sell their merchandise to the unknowing public. Conspiracy theories. That's got to be a fake one, surely. What fake tweet? Okay, I know this one's real. You would have to eat five apples today to get the same nutritional value as an apple from 1950. Hashtag fallow. But we did say earlier that there's no nutrients in the world anymore. Oh, that's true, yeah. No nutrients in the water. Okay, this one's good. So maybe that's true. (laughs) If newborn babies could speak, they would be the most intelligent beings on the planet Earth. (laughs) Why? (laughs) Okay, this one. Uh, It's short and sweet. Most trees are blue. (laughs) 
<laughs> they're green, mate. They're green. Honestly, they really are green. <laughs> He's colourblind and nobody's told him. Ah, oh, no. Poor Jaden. Uh, bless him. I feel like out? dumbing down. <laughs> we can get 1,000 likes on this podcast. We will send Jaden's <laughs> Tell him that he is uh, colorblind. <laughs> right. I love it. Yeah. Just, just to counteract the Jaden Smith quotes, I want to give you one of my favorite Carl Sagan quotes. Good idea. Somewhere, somewhere, something incredible is waiting to be known. Brilliant. Beautiful. I like Beautiful. It. I like it. What about this um, Nicki Minaj <clears throat> quote? You a hoe, you a hoe, you a stupid, stupid hoe. That's, That's deep, one man. of my favorite ones. Of that, that is my favorite <laughs> quote. <laughs> or Beyonce's. Where's my money, bitch? <laughs> this is one of my favourite Brian Cox quotes. The problem with today's world is that everyone believes that they have the right to express their opinion and have others listen to it. The correct statement of individual rights is that everyone has the right to an opinion. But, crucially, that opinion can be roundly ignored and even made fun of, particularly if it is demonstrably nonsense. I love your... Brian Cox. Yeah. It's a great quote, though. especially with your raspy voice. I think it adds a little bit more of a. That's oh, a fantastic a quote. quote. I can't believe you managed to gather four minutes of that full <laughs> <laughs> of just us rambling on about Jaden Smith. There was a lot cut. We went on for a long time. <laughs> but to be fair, after the Jaden Smith talk, we did we did uh, throw in a couple uh, Carl Sagan quotes to balance it out. Yeah, so hopefully a bit of comic relief there from that one. The recording with Geth was quite funny. It was not only he's very entertaining. This... Yeah. He will be joining us again at some point. So during our discussion of pentaquarks, or as Harry referred to them throughout the whole section, tetraquarks, <laughs> which was wrong. Is pentaquarks was the uh, the correct thing? We did yeah, publish a correction haven't on the been website. Actually found yet. No, we haven't found tetraquarks yet. And so following on from our pentaquark conversation, we had a little bit of a chat about the LHC in general and some topics within quantum physics. And you might find this interesting. It's a complicated area of science, but it is very interesting nonetheless, so so enjoy. With the pentaquarks, what we've discovered isn't really a particle, is it? It's a, it's a class of particle. Uh, I was reading up yeah. on it earlier and it was saying there's different types of quarks and that the tetraquark they discovered consisted of two up, one down, one charm, and an anti-charm quark. So does this mean that... Names. I know, it's awesome. I love the charm park. The <laughs> quark. Charm Sounds quark. Like My favourite is the quark. beauty quark, but they renamed it to the bottom quark, which is clearly more boring. <laughs> Isn't there the strange quark as well? There's a or strange is that the lepton? I think no, those no. are all strange, okay. to be honest with you. Well, yeah. <laughs> They're strange in the head. But, but that means there could be tons of these pentaquarks, right? With yes. different types of quarks in them and antiquarks. Yeah, so pentaquark is just a special case of a baryon, basically. Yeah. There's a whole class of different particles that the LHC hasn't found yet that exist in the mathematics, but in, they haven't been observed, right? Yeah. Well, actually, this is what I wanted to talk about when I found out we we're talking about the LHC because recently it's just reopened. I can't remember, but it was this year, right? And it's I think running, it was June. Yeah. And it now was, it's yeah, running it was, yeah. at like full power, basically. Yes. Yeah, They've so, got so many experiments lined up. It's amazing. So what I'm hoping for is some signs of supersymmetry. 
oh, be... I don't think that's going to happen. I I, 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 don't, I just... don't think it's going to happen either. I, no. But it's <laughs> it'd be it'd be fun. Uh, I just yeah. I wonder if have, they might have to build more powerful explain, ones. So Harry, so, exp- explain quickly what um, supersymmetry is. The idea of supersymmetry is that we work on something called the standard model. And the standard model is a way for us to classify all the different building blocks of matter. But the standard model doesn't always necessarily cover everything. There are gaps. Some things have particle partners, some things don't. So supersymmetry is this theory that hasn't you know, been proved, but it's hard to disprove it because you can't disprove anything. Supersymmetry is this idea that for every particle in existence, there is a partner particle somewhere in the standard model that fits it. Which means that pretty much everything we discovered that we haven't discovered a particle partner for, we've still left to discover. And, and it has links to um, M-theory as well, I believe, which is all the different string theory theories all put into one sort of overarching idea. And I think, well, one of the predictions of M-theory is that there should be supersymmetry. And if there isn't supersymmetry, yeah. then M-theory is probably wrong. So if we do find superstring theory, then it does give some confidence to people working on Super string theory, otherwise known as M theory. Uh, but the issue with M theory is it, it's, it's you can't really prove it right. Yeah, but you can make predictions based yes. off the maths and then try and prove those predictions, right? Yeah, I think M theory is very useful as a tool, but as like a solid Newton esque or Albert Einstein esque theory, it doesn't. It's not possible to actually have it tangible. But I, I like what it's trying to do, you know, because it's trying to merge quantum theory with general relativity, right? Yes, but lots of other things can are trying to do that too, the general sort of, you know, the whole theory of everything. Oh, well, thing. there's quantum gravity or something? Quantum is gravity, that, yeah. Because I think the approaches to combine quantum theory and general relativity are quantum gravity, correct me if I'm wrong, quantum gravity and then string theory. And I'm, I'm sure there are a host of other theories. Yeah, so M-theory leads the on theory. from string theory. You have to sort of yeah. believe that string theory is true to, to be able to have M-theory. But string theory is, in its many variable ways, trying to merge general relativity and quantum mechanics. Um, there's all sorts of fun things it's trying to do. It's one of the most interesting parts of science because it's so abstract. You know, you're talking yeah. about really weird things sometimes, like quantum foam. That's just a really odd thing. And um, was it Einstein thingy condensates? I can't remember what it's called now. Oh, um, oh but they're God, quite yes. complex. Basically, I read I read a book on string theory once, written by I think it was Robson Green or was is he the fisherman? Robson Green's a fisherman, yeah. <laughs> I think <laughs> nice. <of> someone green. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Brilliant. No, I like to think of a fisherman who's just like really into his string theory. Brian Green. I read a book about string theory once by Brian Greene and it blew my mind hole and it was amazing and it was so abstract and it was talking about all these dimensions like because I think uh, string theory says there should be like 11 dimensions and there's some people who says there's more and oh, it's incredible and there's like these things called Calabi shapes which are these really really tiny kind of dimensional folds in space and time and that's where the extra dimensions are coming from and it's right. just it blew my mind i tried to read it and comprehend it but it... as far as my understanding of it goes um just like how a hologram is three dimensions of information but in two dimensions of form reality is supposed to be 11 dimensions of information in three dimensions of form 
according to string theory. Right? According to string theory, yeah. yeah, yeah, because because you're talking about the mathematics. I mean, it's very yeah, because the mathematics, yeah, yeah. There's that's Three really hard dimensions. to have sort of experimental fortitude when it comes yeah, to exactly. that. You can get carried away with it. I definitely agree. A lot of that area can become a bit pseudosciency because you can just say anything. And if your obscure branch no, of mathematics, no, 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 no. You, you, as long as you back your obscure branch of mathematics, you know, follows you up. There's just, but science requires experimentation. What you can do is do the maths, make predictions from that those maths, and then look for the ghosts of these predictions, like and this right, is exactly um, what the like LHC gravity is waves doing, and it? stuff That's like that. That's exactly what the LHC is doing because this stuff has been discovered in in the mathematics for ages. What they've done is they've set this experiment to search for the evidence for it, and in variably they've found it in in this part in this mass particle accelerator. And so, I mean, the maths is it fairly sound as a predictive tool for us yes. to use, and as long as we can find a way of actually experimenting and uh, finding the evidence for it. Yeah, that's a good point, but I, the thing is, with uh, the standard model of particles, we had Peter Higgs predicting the Higgs boson, and then you had whoever it was who predicted these pentaquarks. Maths is a very good predictive tool that we can use within science and experimental science. So we can look for, if we find those predictions to be true, then it doesn't prove the theory. Like, I don't think string theory will ever be properly proved, but I think it is possible to look for what the maths predicts. And then that will give some sort of confidence whether people are on the right track. Absolutely. But I mean, obviously, uh, mathematics can predict many worlds theory. That's not just a theory they've picked out of the air, is it? That's mathematically... It is possible. I I think, yeah, yeah, I think they've shown that it's possible, whether it's true or not is another... Exactly. How do you you prove that empirically? Well, what they were trying to do there was to... Travel to another dimension and come back. Like in the film, uh, in like in the TV series, um, sliders. Sliders. Oh, that was so good. Yeah. I great, loved that. Great. But what they were trying to do there, I think, was because they don't quite know what gravity is. Well, they know what gravity does, but it's like yeah, gravity. But how it does it. Yeah. yeah, gravity should be a lot stronger than it is. And they were thinking yeah. that because yeah. gravity should be as strong as the strong force, but it's not. Why? Well, you know, it could be shared over other dimensions or other universes. They had a look at the cosmic wave uh, background. I think they found like these kind of like uh, holes of uh, holes of kind of radiation, and they were thinking that this could be two universe bubbles kind of joined together, like you get in a bubble bath when two bubbles kind of attach to yeah. each other. Yeah. Th- yeah. But the thing is, you know, that's it's it's all theory, really. But did you know that was discovered by accident? Background radiation mass. Was it? I think. Yeah, I think uh, there was noise no, no, on no, a but... array, and they were like, "What the hell is this noise? It's always there." And then they extrapolated well, co- it and then went, "Oh well, god, that's this... the background oh, the radiation." Cosmic background the radiation. They yeah. thought it was pigeons shitting on the te- on the antenna to, to begin with, didn't they? <laughs> yeah. I think so. Yeah, so they yeah, thought yeah. it was, so they yeah. cleaned it, they and and then they and said that this noise was still there. Well, I think so much for this equipment. What they were doing, I think, what they were doing originally was. It was like the search for extraterrestrial life. So they were yes, looking to yeah, see stuff, if yeah. yeah, to see if any radio waves were coming in from other planets and stuff. You know, like we have our radio waves for like TV and shit like that. So they were looking for that, and then just this all this noise, and they're like, "What the hell?" I mean, noise is in the noise static. is in yeah. static. Yeah. So the static noise in the signal on, sense of noise. Yeah. 
Yeah, so on like terrestrial TV, when your TV went all fuzzy, when it wasn't tuned in, that is coming from space. For the younger listeners, you know when you're tuning an analog radio and it goes... That's the cosmic back- background cosmic radiation. Background. Yeah, because I don't Wh- think a lot of the younger people will have seen the. Uh, oh, the of course, thing, yeah. You know. Damn old people. I know. So yeah, they were getting all this noise, and they were like, "Why is that happening?" And as you boys said, it was they first felt like pigeon poo on the yeah. on the array. Absolutely. So they, you know, give it a good clean, and it was still going. So like loose wires, maybe. And then eventually, they'd they'd eliminated all the other signals, and they still had this there. Then after that. That's where the Big Bang Theory and cosmic background radiation really came into fruition. Yeah, and I love um, as well the uh, the idea that this bloke who was actually looking for the cosmic microwave background radiation gave them or sold them or lent them or something the the, te- the, the one they were using and they yes. found it before him. Oh my god, yeah. Oh my god. I was just like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> he must have been so, so cool. pissed off. Oh, they did it by yeah. accident. They're just smarter than you. Yeah. <laughs> so he like had the equipment there he gave it to someone else and they found it at first <laughs> but I love that about science like we talked about earlier it's just these things happen by accident you're like yeah and this is where the inquisitive mind comes in with the scientific mind the inquisitive mind you see something and you don't just dismiss it and go well that's not what is supposed to happen so it must be an error you, you dig deep you look into it you explore it and then you go holy crap I found something new I love quantum physics, Phil. Yeah? It's just so weird. It is weird. It's really, it's, really complicated as well, it has to be said. Yeah, so in that book I read by Brian Greene, it just blew my mind. You know, super string theory and Kalabayai shapes, which are like these multi-dimensional kind of folds in space-time. And it's just, it's just nuts. I, it is, yeah, fascinating I, stuff. I was reading it and I just couldn't comprehend. I was looking at, in general at mathematics and how that they can have uh, shapes with about 10 dimensions or something in it. You can describe it mathematically, but you can't draw it, which I always found mind-boggling. But yeah, that's just how that's how crazy mathematics and quantum mechanics is. Just And some of these mathematicians and stuff. physicists, they they can actually imagine things in like in like 8D or 10D. Yeah. It's crazy. It just seems crazy to me, but I suppose that's the power of mathematics is that you can do things that aren't a part of reality. You can make your own world. <laughs> you can make your own world. I like it. House is playing God. <laughs> well, mathematicians are. <laughs> a final section we'd like to introduce to you today is a conversation we had at the end of the energy topic that we were discussing last time around with Dean. Now, Dean posed this question to us. It was a really, really interesting conversation about climate change and what it means for our future. I'll let you have a listen to that. Have be interesting to know what you think afterwards whether your opinions have changed. Whenever I hear a discussion on global warming, uh, a piece on TV about global warming, if I watch a, a film about global warming, whatever, you, you always come to the same frustrating, like, we've got the knowledge, the insight, the wisdom to see it, but we haven't got the knowledge, wisdom, insight to stop it. I argue that we do have the knowledge, wisdom, and insight to stop it. I think industry's catching up. I think there's plenty of science. There's diverse research going on now. People are getting funded. People are looking into renewables, looking into electric cars. There's a whole thing growing up about it now. And I think it's the 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 actual 
lawmakers, legislators, politicians that are actually one step behind here. And, and that's a mm-hmm. lot to do with basically human nature, the way the system we've built works. And it's just one of those really, really unfortunate accidents that, that is just completely blocked. But I would argue that now, if you look at the smaller countries around the world, um, and, and don't concentrate so much on the big ones, but China aside, because China is doing stuff, but it's also doing a lot of bad stuff. I think now more than ever, it's the time to, to speak up. You know, if you've got a, if you, if you agree with the majority of the world on this, then you've got to tell the minority of the world that are against it you know start petitioning start protesting now because it will have an effect the the the, the small countries are catching on to this and they're doing things about it there's the there's a lot of countries, smaller countries in Europe, especially Scandinavia and things that are seriously in legislating renewables. As you said, there's there's a few countries that are not doing it very well. But the more people around the world now start start to make a noise about this, the more it's going to happen. And the t- I think the tide is turning. But my question was to both of you, I guess, from everything you've read, especially, you know, you feel with the knowledge you have, is that is it actually too late? I think I said this in the first podcast. If you'd speak to, say, James Lovelock, for example, he would say, yeah. I mean, he's got Gaia. a history of... Was he of... Gaia Hypothesis? Gaia Hypothesis, yeah. He, he basically, he, he, well, I, I don't know if he's retired yet, but he's um, more or less a self-funded scientist because he invented yeah, the he instrument because... to detect ozone, yeah. Uh, he comes yeah. up with some of these controversial claims sometimes just to create a discourse in the field. So he, he basically says that even if we cut emissions completely tomorrow and we produce no more carbon dioxide, we'd still uh, have a, a runaway greenhouse problem. But not a runaway greenhouse problem like Venus, but the model the models do predict an increase in global average temperature by 2100 of something like uh, 1.2 degrees, best case scenario. So there will be some warming. The biggest issue is whether it's going to be or what is it, 1.4 degrees or 4.2 degrees? That's the biggest issue because what, that's what a I'm saying is difference. like I think I think it is. Love like he's not the only one that's saying this. If, if you look, you watch any documentary about the Antarctic or anything like that, and and the Arctic as well, like the scientists there saying, look, sea levels going to rise now. That's it. You know, there's no yeah. stopping this. Yeah, now there is. Started, a, uh, there are some um, things. There are some things that you can't. They're, they're called positive feedback mechanisms. Which, so that they, they, they're they're already going to lead. Which is going to sorry, yeah, that's going to create the first climate refugees. You know, very very soon. If, if uh, there probably yeah. already are climate refugees of mm. certain kind, but mm-hmm. the first global warming refugees certainly. So those things are inevitable. But what I mean is, like, do you think, in your personal, like, from what you've read, do you think that we could conceivably, considering how long it would take to actually say we all committed to it tomorrow, it would actually take quite a long time to do? Is it conceivable that we could reverse the damage or just stop, just pull back from the brink? No, the short answer. As- we'll just bumble along, won't we? Because that these feedback loops are in play. So mm. the the Earth will keep warming, but it just depends on how much it's going to warm. That's yeah. that's the issue. It's the extent, really. That's 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 the that's the main issue. I mean, these sort of things are going to happen. The temperature is going to increase, whatever happens now, because of what we of the damage we've already done. It's just mitigating against how bad it's going to be. We're not going to be able to yeah, reverse I, the problem. I think it's healthier to say, look, we've we've gone too far now. We just need to we need to look at how we can we reduce the extent because. To me, the problem is within us. Like, I, what I'd like to see is like, yeah, we, we pull ourselves back from the brink, and then we work on ways to make sure we never do something as stupid as this again. Yeah, like as as a race, and, and we start thinking more collectively as a race. Going, this was ridiculous. Like, we yeah, I'd to like to I like to point in, out a little a little thing in on a smaller scale. DDT pesticides, we messed that up, and we basically put regulations in place to to make sure that we don't have pesticides that are as damaging as DDTs were, and so we've 
we've learned from our mistakes. So I, I think absolutely we will do the same thing with climate change. The problem with climate change is, is it's a much bigger, it's a much it's bigger a cock scale, up. isn't it? But I think it's a, it's a global happen. cock up, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And no yeah. one wants to admit. No one to wants it. to go. Okay, make the change first. I'll make the big leap, the the mm. you know the big hurrah. And invest loads and loads of money in this because you know there's how many countries in the world uh, with three hundred, almost two hundred. Um, yeah. You know, no one wants to make the first step because it's it costs money. That is because though, as individuals, we we tend to think in 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 periods of you know eighty years or less. You know, yeah, that, it's true. And, and and that is a short term thing. I think the the first people to live to one hundred and fifty years old are alive today. And imagine when they're one hundred and fifty, then will 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 lifespan? We're looking at things like that and and medical science. And you think the human race, then as a as a race, is is going to change and evolve with technology? Now, I think we're coming to a point where where transhumanism is going to take effect. Mm. Whether it's downloading our brains into machines or you know, mm. I know this sounds like science fiction, but I I, I, every, I mean, it's coming. It's <laughs> yeah. coming. And and. It, if we just pull ourselves back from the brink, we're probably going to have steps in place soon to, to be more unified and these kind of things in the future. I would hope that's my that's yeah, my yeah. small slither of optimism on these things is to cut our losses. Let's build that barrage, kill a few birds, because unfortunately we've got no choice. So, yeah, it's an interesting uh, it's an interesting problem. Now, I would quite like to just briefly go over what some of the feedback mechanisms we were talking about are. One of the big ones is ice albedo forcings, which we have mentioned in a previous podcast. Now, that's where heat from the sun is reflected by ice and absorbed by the ocean. So if more heat from the sun is absorbed by the ocean than is reflected by light, then the temperature will gradually increase. Now, as the temperature increases, this means that more and more sea ice is lost, and so more ocean is exposed and more heat is generated which means less ice, more heat absorbed, etc., etc., and it goes on in a feedback mechanism. So it's like a snowball effect, essentially. And so that's one of the mechanisms we're talking about. Now, that's quite a profound problem, because once that mechanism has started, once the snowball's begun, it's very difficult to stop it. If we try and decrease the temperature using um, methods of decreasing carbon dioxide, that's all well and good, but it's still not going to stop this forcing, which is already ongoing. Which is why when we say, even if we stop CO2 emissions tomorrow, the temperature will still increase. So you need so, to literally draw CO2 from the atmosphere. You need to somehow cool the temperature of, of the planet, yeah, which is not easy to do. The climate system is extremely complex. I mean, that's just one of many feedback mechanisms that are in place in the climate system. A computer climate model will in, invariably take hours if not sometimes days to run because it's so complicated there's so many variables in it because if you think about it what you're trying to do is you're trying to uh, model air movement and temperature across the globe now you're talking 24,000 miles in circumference at the equator so the area is huge and so you've got to cut that down into grid squares and it's three it's three dimensional as well I should mention so not only is it we're looking at the whole column of atmosphere. Each grid square represents a whole column of atmosphere. Sometimes it represents lots of squares within that column. So you're talking about an immense number of data points here. In each grid square, the equations within that are complex. There's lots of complex equations because there's loads of different variables. They all have to be resolved, and they also have a knock-on effect on their adjacent squares. And so this is why these models can take so long to, um, to actually run, and why they actually use clusters of processors. So you, you know like you've got a 
single processor in your own computer? Will they use hundreds of those? And it still takes hours and hours to run these models. They're really, really complicated and they cost a lot of money to develop as we've discovered in What's the Cost in one of the previous episodes. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a massive undertaking. It's really difficult to do. All the models that we've got at the moment sort of predict an increase in temperature even if you cut out these feedback mechanisms. So it's, it's, a, it's a really massive issue that we've got at the moment. Just to add a little bit extra onto the conversation we had with Dean there. It's pretty much all doom and gloom, isn't it? There's it's no not... happy stories with climate change, is there? Apart from, you know, we might have a couple of nicer doom and gloom. Yeah, we'll yeah. have a few nicer summers. But it's the, but... The, the biggest problem that they're trying to work out now isn't if it'll happen, isn't whether it's happening, it's how bad is it going to be? Because that's, yeah. the, that's the real question. They're going to, what will be the extent of it? What will be the temperature increase by 2100, which is the benchmark that they're working towards at the moment? And if that temperature increase does happen, what does that mean in real terms? Because so, I know that the IPCC, they have predictions for 2100 for a low emissions target and a high emissions. Yeah. What about, have they done anything on if we are carbon neutral? Okay. Um, whenever they conduct studies, because don't forget the IPCC report is a, it's a review of all the science that's been done recently, uh, all the modelling studies that have been done recently on the climate. There are emission scenarios out there where they've run a carbon neutral model run and they still end up with these these temperature increases obviously they're a lot lower than if you continue to pump carbon dioxide into the atmosphere yeah but because like i said these feedback mechanisms are in place and there's not much you can do to stop those from happening so there will be an increase in temperature but it just does we're just not entirely sure what it will mean in real world terms for say a one degree increase in global temperature what that'll mean for uh, desertification, extreme weather events, that sort of thing. Whether it'll increase the frequency, how things will change, we're not really sure. Um, well, there's some evidence that um, the frequency of extreme weather events has increased. They're, yes. They're, yeah, yeah, extreme weather events have increased. They're not sure whether this is due to um, climate change. Yeah, this is the but problem think, as well, because yeah. weather is, is, is variability year to year. Whereas climate is, you're talking about a 30-year average. So there is a massive difference between weather and climate. So it's really hard to say things like things whether that are weather-orientated, whether or not they are directly influenced by increased global temperature or not. But the problem with that is, of course, you need 30 years of data to work out whether something's becoming more increasingly frequent or mm. not. So, you know, it does depend as well on the time frame that you decide to take your um, data set from. So... It's, it's a very complicated area of science um, and one that we'll be watching closely anyway. But what we're saying essentially is we need to start doing something about this because even if we do everything we can to get carbon emissions down to zero, we're st- it's still going to get warmer. The increase is going to be a lot less than if we keep going the way we are. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah. sort your shit out, governments of the world. <laughs> Okay, thanks, House, for joining me tonight for the bonus content podcast. Yeah, it's yeah, been good, it's mate. Been good. Yeah. It's been a shame that we couldn't record a full episode, but... No, um, no. we will be doing a full episode very soon, but we wanted to get some content out for people, um, and we, we did have some really good content in reserve, so we've decided to give you something uh, rather than nothing. So, as always, we are on multiple social platforms, on Facebook at Skeptics Night In, Twitter at Skeptics underscore NI, 
download us on iTunes at Skeptics Night In. If you want to listen to us in the car on your way to work, you can also listen to us and download our podcast from SoundCloud at Skeptics Night In. And if you want to query us or suggest a topic for us to discuss, please email us on skepticsnightin at gmail.com. Thank you very much for listening. We've been a Skeptics Night In.